Information writes these perceptive words. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death, and he sent us a savior. Perhaps one of the greatest texts that demonstrates that truth is 1 Peter chapter 2. If you would turn in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter's writing to Christians who were under severe persecution. In fact, he tells them in 1 Peter chapter 1, Rejoice if need be, you suffer for a little while, knowing that the testing of your faith, which is of far, far more greater value than gold which perishes, will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then he tells them in chapter 2, not only are you to rejoice, you're to be a witness in this suffering. He says, you are a holy priesthood, a royal nation, called out of darkness into light to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called you, who has saved you. And so he's writing to these Christians in their suffering to remind them that they are called to be witnesses even in the midst of their suffering. In fact, you can see in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Those are the kind of things that rise up when people are pushing against you. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed... You have tasted that the Lord is good. So he's writing to those who have tasted that the Lord is good. But that doesn't mean that once you've tasted that he is good, that you move on to other things. Okay? In fact, we always need to be reminded. In fact, the key to godliness is to continue to taste the goodness of the Lord. And our present text that we're going to look at tonight, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, teaches us three things about the Lord's goodness, which is demonstrated supremely in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the first thing we're going to see in this passage is that Jesus is our standard when suffering. He is our example, if you will. Look with me in verses 18 to 23. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And he's writing to Christians here. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when if you do good and suffer, for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so the first thing we see here when dealing with the kind of suffering that they're dealing with and people are, are you know, sp- spreading false things, persecuting them, endangering their lives, plundering their goods, is that we see that Jesus is the standard, the example on how to suffer righteously. In fact, verse 22, note there, it's a very interesting verse. He says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's a direct quotation from Isaiah 53. Now, this morning we were talking about the suffering servant, the servant of the Lord who would come and save Israel and save the nations, the outcast. And we know from the servant songs, which you see in, for instance, Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, that this servant would accomplish this salvation through substitutionary suffering. All right? And he picks up a verse from Isaiah 53, 9, where it says, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so... Peter here is picking up that passage and saying that is pointing and speaking of Christ. That's who he's speaking to. Now, where did Peter get that from? Yes, he was inspired by the Spirit. Remember, Jesus spent three years with Peter. And Jesus would have exegeted the Old Testament for three years and shown how he was the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament pointed to. And obviously Isaiah 53 is that great passage that points to what he would do to accomplish our salvation. But Peter's readers were suffering verbal abuse. We don't know what kind, uh, but they were being misrepresented. We know in early church history they were accused of cannibalism because they ate of the flesh, they drank of the blood of Christ. They were accused of being atheist because uh, in the Jewish world um, they did not hold in their view to the one God because they believed in three gods, which was obviously a misrepresentation. But they were, they, were, they were experiencing a lot of slander. For instance, if you look in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then if you look over in chapter 3, verse 9, in chapter 3, verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 16, he says, Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so the goodness of God is demonstrated to us in that Christ came as our standard, our example on how to suffer when those speak ill of us, when those persecute us. But that's not the strongest motivation. That's not the strongest motivation for being a light in darkness when you are being persecuted, when you are being pressed against. 
Because not only is he our standard, our example, that is, he's also our substitute. That is, while we were his enemies, he did not retaliate against us. Rather, he died in our place for our sins of being in rebellion to him. Notice Jesus as our substitute in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Notice, not that we might go to heaven. That's the way some people teach it and preach it. It's not so that you can just go to heaven and have fire insurance. It's so that you, yourself, can die to sin and live to righteousness. In other words, someone who professes Christ, but who has not died to sin and lives to righteousness, is not born again. He died so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And his death is effective. It is efficacious. Now, Jesus' silence, which we saw in his example, tells us what Jesus did not do. But here, Peter tells us what Jesus did. Now, he's combining, again, several passages from Isaiah 52 and 53. Now, why is that so important? For this reason, Isaiah 53, except for one verse which speaks about the servant's appearance. Every verse in Isaiah 53 is quoted in the New Testament. That tells us that's one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, about the coming servant. For instance, he combines these three verses in that particular verse here in verse 24. Isaiah 53 verse 12, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He's praying for those who transgress against, against him. Isaiah 53 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. And so Jesus is our standard, that is our example. But most importantly, he is our substitute. Let me give you an example. If he's not our substitute, his example doesn't mean anything. If I were to want to demonstrate to Carl how much I love him, and I would say, Carl, you see that bus coming down the road? I'm going to show you how much I love you. And I step in front of that bus. Okay? Have I shown you how much I love Carl? No, I have shown you how foolish I am. That I've lost a, you know, a bolt. I've, something's missing. However, if Carl is standing in the way of that bus, and I push him out of the way, and I take the brunt of that collision in the place of Carl, not only have I shown him by example how much I love him, I've done it through substitution. In other words, Jesus' example to us is grounded in his substitution for us. 
The reason we need a substitute is because we are sinners by birth and sinners by choice. And the wrath of God righteously and in a very holy way resides on sin. It is good that God judges sin. We know that in a normal life. When a criminal does something egregious, we want that judge to bring down the hammer on the criminal. It is good that God judges sin. The reason it's not good for us is that we're the sinner. But Christ as our substitute takes the blame. He takes the wrath in our place. And so, uh, Jesus is our substitute. Therefore, what you have is divine self-satisfaction. God satisfies his wrath on sin through the substitute. Divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. Divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. He takes the place for sinners. Every sin you've ever committed or presently committing or will ever commit was judged at the cross 2,000 years ago. And so God's goodness that we taste is tasted by the fact that he is our, our standard, our example, and he is our substitute. But thirdly, we also see in this text that he is our shepherd. Notice in verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, he's drawing from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now that, did, that does not mean that Jesus became a sinner on the cross. But it does mean that our sin was imputed to him. There's a transaction that takes place. In fact, there's three what we would call imputations in the Bible. Adam's sin is imputed to us. That's why we're born sinners. And that's why we are guilty and corrupt before God. So Adam's sin is, is imputed to all mankind. But at the cross, our sin, that is the believer's sin, is imputed to the Christ. And our iniquity is laid on him. And in believing in his finished work, his righteousness is imputed to us. Okay? That's the work of the shepherd here. Uh, the point here is that uh, Jesus' substitution and his suffering was more than just an example. It was aimed at a rescue. It was a rescue operation. Again, notice in verse 25, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We were lost sheep. We strayed, and, and, and there's a reason the Bible describes us as sheep. Sheep are not wise or smart, okay? But we are ignorant because of the hardness of our hearts, Ephesians 4.18. And so we stray in rebellion to God, and the shepherd 
pursues us, as we'll see in Luke chapter 15, and in his pursuit of us, we return back to him. Now notice, this passage does not allude to Isaiah, but it does allude to Ezekiel 34, which is speaking of the same time period. And here's what Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 34. For thus says the Lord God. Now this is Yahweh. He says, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. So Yahweh is the one who is seeking out the sheep, which means Yahweh is the shepherd. As the shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. He's the seeking shepherd. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. What's interesting here is that Yahweh is the shepherd in the Old Testament. Jesus is the shepherd in the New Testament. He is Yahweh. He is God of very God. In fact, this Ezekiel passage in the Greek translation, which Peter was probably using, uses the word for shepherd and overseer in that Ezekiel 34 passage. What's interesting as well is that word for shepherd is the same word we translate pastor. He is the chief pastor, okay? And that word for overseer is the word uh, that we translate bishop, which is the same office as the pastor slash elder. So he is the chief pastor. He is the chief uh, bishop. And those of us who are in the vocational ministry as pastors, we're under shepherds. We're under pastors, if you will, and under bishops, under overseers as well. Jesus retrieves the straying sheep by taking their sin on his back. And by taking that guilt and by being punished for the guilt, our sins are taken away. The very sin that caused us to rebel. And now, having our sins taken away, we return not out of compulsion, but out of gratitude, out of love, out of thanksgiving. We are sheep who now follow the shepherd, not out of duty, though there is duty there, but out of delight. Out of delight. And so Peter here connects three important truths in our passage to show us and remind us of the goodness of God that we've tasted. Jesus is the shepherd. We are the straying sheep. And through the shepherd's cross, we are healed and we return. As he will say in 1 Peter 3, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We were straying, but he brings us back to God, being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the Spirit. In other words, the shepherd becomes a substitutionary sheep. 
Isaiah 53 again. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So the shepherd became a sheep to bring us back to God. And it is those who have returned back to the shepherd through his finished work who celebrate the Lord's table. That's why we're here tonight. We celebrate what he has accomplished for us in our salvation. Indeed, our greatest need, as D.A. Carson said, is our sin and our alienation from God And the Lord's table celebrates that God has given us the greatest solution, a Savior. And so, as we approach the Lord's table tonight, what I want us to do is I want us just to bow our heads, and I'm going to read Isaiah 53. And I want you to meditate with me. If you want to turn there, that's fine. Or you can just bow your heads. And I just want to read, starting at the end of chapter 52, and I just want us to to set our hearts on the finished work of the Savior. Um, And incidentally, here's a man who's writing 700 years before the Christ would come. It's a remarkable prophecy of the one who would come and accomplish our redemption. In Isaiah 52, he writes, starting in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act right wisely. That's the, the servant of the Lord that we looked at this morning. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as far as his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. 
The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Amen. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He took our sin. He took our iniquities. And that's why we should take sin seriously. And so as we approach the Lord's table this evening, take a moment to repent of any unrepentant sin so that you don't take the table in a manner unworthy. And if you are visiting with us tonight, this is not the Southern Baptist table. This isn't Fisherville's table. This is the table of the Lord Jesus. But there are conditions. The conditions are these. You have repented of your sins. You have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. What he did on the cross to take your punishment. You believe that he's been raised from the grave for your justification. And you are a member in good standing of an evangelical church We, uh, upon your baptism. And we encourage you to participate with us on those conditions. But we also need to take our sin seriously. So ask the Lord to show you any unconfessed sin. Oh, Father, hallowed be your name. We come to your table tonight, the table of your Son, our shepherd, our overseer, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we become because your Spirit has brought us here. Indeed, we come because Jesus Christ became flesh and he dwelt among us and we've beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Father, we would come this day to acknowledge that we need you. We need your grace and your mercy, your steadfast love. And as we come to this table today, we need to come because you have worked in us and you have drawn us here. Father God, we come and ask that you would take these common elements and that you would use them as a means of grace for your children. That you would cause us to be reminded that when the bread breaks in our mouth, that Jesus' body really was broken for us. And that when we taste this juice, that Jesus' blood was really shed for us. May this be for us who come to this table. For those of us who trust in Jesus, may it be a reminder of what he did for us and how he suffered in our place. May it also be a reminder of how great you are and how glorious is your grace to us who are sinners. And may we be filled with your spirit that we may go forth and proclaim your name. Thank you for blessing this time. And we ask, Father, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As the deacons come forward.